people joining. So a uh, quick uh, word, um, all the people who don't have their cameras on, it's just an encouragement to um, come to the class with your cameras on, not because I want to see you all, but it'll help your concentration level. You'll feel more involved. I won't ask you any questions. I never ask anyone any questions. I just ask if anyone would like to answer. So don't feel, you know, that I'll be put on the spot because you won't be. I only put people who I know don't mind being put on the spot. So, um, you know, just an encouragement to put your videos on um, for your own benefit. So Bhagavad Gita, chapter six, the yoga of meditation. Uh, we finish topic three in the next two verses, and then we begin topic four. Controlled mind remains peaceful. Like, I know these topics are not that easy. Yeah, We're talking about something quite deep, something quite high, deep meditation. And most of us haven't done this. We haven't done any form of meditation. So it's difficult to get our heads around it. And another thing is we're asking you to do something we've never done before. Take your thoughts away from the world and think of something beyond the world, something within, which you're not uh, sure of. So it's not an easy topic, this. But we still cover it to the best we can. And who knows, one day when you... Uh, a more spiritually developed, you'll go back and it'll all make sense. But I'll try and break it down so it's as simple as possible. So uh, we did verse, only did verse 22 last week, only one verse. Learn to fix your mind on the inner self. As I just said, everyone's mind is extroverted. It's in the world. Lord is saying, when the thoughts are in the world, you'll be agitated. A mind that turns within, what is this Atman? What is this self? When they question, you question this, you become an introverted person. This person is less agitated. Less agitation means more happiness. It's the agitations that stop you from being happy. Once you're established in this experience with the self, you won't be interested in anything else. You will not be moved by sorrow. You also said that we all have a limit. 
how much sorrow we can sustain. And it's different for everyone. I gave you that example from a parent, house, family. And we concluded that the level that we can deal with is dependent on our spiritual growth. The higher the spiritual growth in you, the more you, sorrow you can deal with. The less the sorrow will affect you. So if you say, I'm very happy, I'm peaceful right this moment, we said it's dependent on certain external factors which we have no control over. Everything's okay today. Anything can happen any, any time. Because the world is such. So the spiritual knowledge helps us to understand life. And if we understand life, will not be affected by the greatest sorrow that we face. If we don't understand, then everything will trouble us. So go within, seek the self, and no sorrow in the world can affect you. That was verse 22. A lot to cover in verse 22, that was. Any clarifications? Any questions before we begin today's verse 23? Does everyone understand that sorrow is dependent on your spiritual growth? The more developed you are, the more you can deal with in life. So what do you mean? It boils down to you yourself, you're in control of it. You can't blame anyone but yourself. If you're unhappy, you're miserable, it's in your hands. Because you, us, we all, as human beings, are supposed to be permanently happy. We're not supposed to be in this situation. The self within us is pure. It's Atman, Brahman, God. But we've forgotten. And that's the reason why we call it sorrow. As we remember, the sorrow becomes less. Hey, I'm invincible. I'm the Atman. What is this? It's just an illusion. Then nothing in the world will affect you. Just as nothing in the dream affects you when you wake up. I thought something to ponder on. Yeah, so so we we talk about the three states of consciousness. Yeah, mm. wake, dream, deep sleep. Sorry, four, and the fourth state, mm. which is beyond all three. Yeah. So I'm assuming that only somebody that's in the fourth state really can meditate because because if you're saying not being affected for example the example you just gave of a waker and a dreamer the 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 waker wakes up from the dream world and is not affected of what happened in the dream of what happened in the dream so a person who is self-realized on the fourth stage realizes that everything is an illusion and is not affected 
of what occurs in the waking world. Because for him, there's no difference of the waking dream. It's the fourth stage. So really, I'm asking you, it's not really possible, is it, then, unless we transcend to the fourth plane of consciousness, that we can really meditate and not be affected by anything. So first of all, a bit of uh, clarification, please. How do you get to the fourth state? From the waking world to the fourth state, how do you get there? What's the mechanism? What do you need to do? Lift yourself. And then? What is the mechanism that takes you, propels you from the waking world to the fourth, fourth stage? What is it that you have to do? Anyone? Detach from the material world. Sorry, Sylvan? Detachment from the material world. Yeah, that is part of the process. But what is that one mechanism? Meditation. So then, your question is, you can only meditate if you reach the fourth state. Yeah. The medit meditation is the mechanism that propels you from the waking world to the fourth stage. Just like the alarm clock wakes you up from the dream world to the waking world. So therefore, meditation is what takes you to the fourth stage. So you're incorrect when you said only, you can only meditate when you're the fourth stage. Yeah? Just so that everyone is clear on that. But what, what I can I just add though? I think when you're in the fourth state, you don't need to meditate because your your whole way of being is meditation. Is that right? Is that yes. okay? Just like once you've woken up with the alarm clock, yeah, you don't go back to sleep. You're up. Yeah, yeah, same thing. So once you're there, then you realize it's an illusion. Just as when you wake up, you realize the dream was an illusion. Something that happened last night. Is that okay? Good. Any any other clarifications? Okay. So this continues from the last verse, verse twenty-three. Dham vidyad dukha sam yoga, viyogam yoga samitam. Sanishchayena yoktavyo, yogo nirvina chetasa, dam vidya dukha sam yoga, viyogam yoga sam nitam, sanishchayena yoktavyo, yogo nirvina chetasa. Let that be known as the yoga of severance from the union with pain. That yoga should be practiced with determination and with an undespairing mind. Let that be known as the yoga of severance from the union with pain. That yoga should be practiced with determination and with an undespairing mind. Nilam. Can you read the first paragraph? As you approach the self, you become freer from the pain and sorrow of the world. Your identification with your material equipments and their involvement in the world causes you sorrow. 
By attaching yourself to the higher, you detach from the lower. As you begin to unite with the self in the first stage of your pursuit of self-realization, you gain severance from sorrow. Severance from sorrow does not mean the positive bliss of realization. Thank you. So when we say look within for permanent peace and happiness, as I said, we don't actually know what this means. Why don't we know what it means? You say, look within for permanent peace and happiness. If I say that to someone, they don't actually know what that means. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. They don't actually know what it means. Why? Any idea? Yeah. Is it because we've never experienced it before? Absolutely correct. We've never experienced it. How can we follow that? How do we know what to do? It's a concept unheard of by most of us. Most of us in the world. They're only used to looking out. Maybe they'll look within to think with the intellect. Maybe they might need to feel something with their mind, emotions. But nobody has knows how to look within for peace and happiness. They're always looking outside for peace and happiness. We've never experienced it. So it's something that has to be experienced. We all go for a day going from being happy to unhappy. It's a constant cycle. We go up and down. We don't know what permanent happiness is. No one has experienced permanent happiness. Can anyone put their hand up and say, I've experienced permanent happiness? It's a cycle we all go through. Because the world is such, it's not our fault. The world is such. So we don't know what permanent happiness is. So this verse is saying, fair enough. You don't know the happiness that is within. Hence you go out looking for it in the world. And also, you don't feel it immediately. You try to look within, it doesn't, you don't feel it. You don't experience it. You've never experienced it. But when you do decide to practice this union with the self, meaning you put your goal to self-realization, you develop spiritually, become closer to the self. When you do that, you put that effort in, it's saying the result will be that you become less affected by sorrow. less affected by sorrow in the world. And this effect is gradual. It won't happen instantly. It'll happen slowly. As you identify with the self, which is your true personality? Yeah? You're not meeting anybody else. You're meeting yourself. What happens is your identification with your material equipment, your hands, your arms, your eyes, your five senses, your body, mind, intellect, with the world reduces. 
as you go within, your contact with the world reduces. And it's the attachment to the world that causes the sorrow. So as you're contacting less, the sorrow becomes less. As your attachment becomes less, as Shilabin said, when you reduce this attachment by going within, the sorrow is reduced. Because internally, it's only peace and happiness. There's no sorrow inside. You won't come across sorrow when you go within. You'll only come across peace and happiness, it's saying. It's a blunder that we all make. And it's not our fault. Because we're not educated in this area. But it's a blunder that we make, it's saying. You want peace and happiness, but you're looking in the wrong place. You have to look inside. And outside we're attached to everything. Which brings us to sorrow. Home, car, partner, kids, business, bank balance, name, fame, religion. All that we're attached to. Whatever happens to those things that we're attached to happens to us. So we develop this attachment and when we suffer from the peace, from sorrow and happiness. So whose fault is it? If you're suffering, whose fault is it? Your own fault, our own fault. If you're attached to nothing, you're sitting in a cave, What's going to happen? Nothing. You're not going to feel any sorrow and attachments. You're not attached to anything. You don't have any possessions. No, no sorrow, no pain. So all this we create, we get attached to. All the wars in the world happen because of a person's attachments to their religion. He's different from me. She's different from me. Then hatred occurs. Attachment to our body, mind, intellect. Saying you're not the body, mind, intellect. You're the self. But because of our ignorance, we attach ourselves to our body, mind, intellect, and we suffer. It's very, um, it's not, it's, it, it sounds easy, but it's not, it's very difficult because we have to remove all that attachment. Now, when we say remove all that, it doesn't mean you give everything away. Tell your family, okay, I'm living on my own now because I'm attached to you guys, you know, and it's bringing me sorrow and unhappiness. See you. It's not a solution, yeah? What we have created, we have to live with. And the more you have, the more the sorrow and pain. That's the problem. We think the more we have, the less pain and sorrow we'll have. But the, it's the opposite. The more we have, the more pain and sorrow. <laughs> because the attachment is greater. <laughs> what a fool we are all. So he's saying go within. 
Most people believe God and myself are separate. God is outside in heaven. God is within us. We are God. The spirit is within us. Hence, we are alive. We're living this life. When you understand this, then you're ready. You're ready to go within. This is what this verse. This isn't what this verse is saying, but we're we're going into it to a way we can understand it. Otherwise, if I just explain that, you won't get anything from it. Severance from sorrow. Now we go. Okay, yeah, severance. Okay, but that doesn't mean anything. We can't practice severance from sorrow, but unless we understand what what's creating that sorrow. So it's all our doing. So who has to undo it? Us. We tied the knot, we have to untie the knot. Any questions? Nila, paragraph two, please. You must practice this yoga of severance from sorrow with determination. Vow to liberate yourself from the pain and sorrow of life, from the despair and anguish of your mind. The mind will continue to suffer as long as the intellect does not conform to a determined course of action. Your intellect must fix the self as the ultimate goal and your mind surrender to it. Your mind then does not despair anymore. Continue this practice until you reach the state of realization. It's the mind that causes the issues, you see. Pain and suffering, the sorrow, it's the mind. Because the mind is like a child in you. It doesn't know what it wants. The intellect has to guide it. The big brother. The parent has to guide it. The intellect must set the goal to reach the self. And then the mind surrenders to it. Mind surrenders until you reach the state of self-realization. Only then will the mind be completely free from the pain and suffering. So it's telling you, Lord is telling you what to do. Blueprint. It's giving us a blueprint of what to do. So you need to fix the goal and then go for it. Be determined, it said. Vow to liberate yourself from the pain and sorrow of life. When you're spiritually evolved, meaning you've developed spiritually, understand this, what this world is. He feels sorrow. Yeah, even if you develop spiritual, you still feel sorrow. We're not saying you're going to become a stone. But the intellect does not allow the feelings of the mind to victimize that person. They're in control of their sorrow. They won't let it stop them from doing anything else. Someone passes away, someone has an accident, heart attack, stroke, you feel for them. It's a human nature to do so. It's a very thin line, you see. You become spiritually 
evolve, but you can still have an ego and say, you know what, so what? Cause and effect. He was smoking all his life, and no wonder, no wonder he had a heart attack. And you walk on. That doesn't work. Poor guy suffered. He wasn't privy to the knowledge you have, to the spirit, the development you've had. You feel sorry for them. You help them wherever they can. But the intellect is in control. You see the difference, Dharmeshi? You understand the difference? He doesn't overtake you. So you can't think clearly. You're still in control of it. Once established in the self, the enlightened one is not moved even by deep sorrow. Not many people would understand these concepts. They were, they're quite deep, hence the same. Yapasati, Sapasati. Those who see it, see it. Someone might think, what's wrong with this guy? He has no feelings? Everyone is crying, but you're not crying. What's the matter? You don't feel the emotions? How do you explain to that person? Life goes on. Rebirth happens. Cause and effect happens. You can't explain to a person. Those who see it, see it. Those who don't see it, you can't make them. They're not ready for it. It's a, That's why it's a, a journey made for each individual person. You can't take anyone with you. Not your mother, your father, your siblings, your children. It's a lonely journey. An individual journey. Any questions? Twenty-four. Sankalpa Prabhavan Kamam Stiak Vasarvanase Sataha Manase Vendriya Gramam Viniyam Yasamantataha Abandoning without reserve all desires born of Sankalpa thoughts and completely restraining the group of senses from all quarters by the mind. Abandoning without reserve all desires born of sankalpa, thoughts, and completely restraining the group of senses from all quarters by the mind. Hema, paragraph one, please. The preparation for meditation is deep and demanding. You will have to abandon all the desires pertaining to the world. The only desire at the seat of meditation is to realize the self. In fact, the desire for the self is so powerful 
that it displaces all other desires. I think it's very difficult to reach this state of meditation. Why is it difficult? Because of sankalpa. Sankalpa translates as thoughts. Thoughts manifest as desires, manifest as action. Vasnas you're born with, you create new vasnas. This manifests as thoughts, sankalpa, sankalpa manifests as desires, and then you act on it. So it's very difficult to reach this state of meditation. Because to reach this state, you must be free of all worldly thoughts. All worldly desires except for one. I want to reach the goal of all human beings. To reach a union with the self. That is my only goal in life. When that happens, then you will reach that stage. This is what it's saying. And that's why they recommend you don't meditate till you're prepared for it. Because mentally your mind is always in the world and you're trying to withdraw it. And sometimes you're forcing it and it doesn't work. It can cause you mental issues if you force yourself and strain your mind. Just like any other muscle you can strain. It can strain your mind. But our thoughts are in the world. So it's difficult to be free of these worldly thoughts. What are these worldly thoughts? They're driven by two motivations to acquire and enjoy. That's all we are thinking of to acquire and enjoy. As I said in the beginning, because we believe that all. Happiness is in the world, and that's it. And the more I have, the more happy I'll be. We believe that, truly believe that. And society doesn't help us. It promotes it all. So it's swimming against the tide, it is. It's so difficult. The two motivations to acquire and enjoy, we want to get something we desire, then we want to enjoy it. And that gives us some small amount of peace and happiness. And we're doing this until we die. That's the only thing that motivates us in life. Acquire and enjoy. Think about it. I must get that new electric car new model. You acquire it, you enjoy driving it. Within one year, a new model comes up. New Tesla model. Better than the one you have, more powerful. You now want to acquire that because you feel that will give you a great amount of enjoyment. This is how the mind works. Yeah. If anyone disagrees, please raise your hand. You can replace that car with anything you want in life. It doesn't matter. I want a bigger house. I want another child. I want another partner. I want a grandchild. It's 
all for your own enjoyment. This is what we're doing all our life. This is what it's saying. But the fact is no one has found satiation, satisfaction, complete satisfaction from doing this. Do we know anyone has found complete satisfaction? Hence the term, when is enough enough? When, when is enough enough? Anyone? what you've learned, when is enough enough? Dharmesh, when is enough enough? When you don't want any more. And when is that? Either you die or you self-realized. You're wrong. Because when you die, the vastness comes with you. When you're born again next, next time, those desires come back again. So you haven't got rid of them. There's only one way. <laughs> Until you look within. The desires will follow you every life. They continue with you. So you, you can never get rid of them. The vastness, the vastness is what propels you to be born. That's why no one's found that satisfaction. Even the richest man is still looking for more riches. Jeff, Jeff, the Amazon guy, is still looking to expand. Elon Musk is now looking to expand into the skies. Maybe he'll find peace and happiness there. If he acquires that, he thinks, you know, go and go to somewhere where no one's been before. Maybe the peace and happiness is there, he's thinking. Let me try. No one's been there. Still, it's outside. So there's no end to this. You look out, there's no end. Now, you must not misunderstand. We're not saying, don't do this. Don't go out and acquire and enjoy. The scriptures here, Bhagavad Gita is not saying, don't acquire and don't enjoy life. Don't enjoy the world. It's not saying that. But if you're looking for that permanent peace and happiness, then it's just saying, yeah, fine. It's not in the world. Though. So acquire whatever you want, but you won't find what you're looking for in the world. You go and try it. And while you're experimenting, it's saying, Never let your present happiness depend on future acquisitions. At least find some temporary peace and happiness in your acquisitions. Otherwise, it'll, it'll, it's a waste of time. If I get that, I'll be happy. If I get that, when, when you get it, you want something else. So at least with whatever you get, at least be happy with that temporarily. Otherwise, you'll never be happy. You'll be eternally miserable. So be content with what you have, and then if you want more, aspire for that. What's the easiest way to be content and happy? Any idea? 
if I say to you, be happy right now, how could you be happy right now? Gratitude. Gratitude for what you have. Yeah. You're, you're on the right ballpark. How can you be happy right now? How do you look at life? Gratitude is one way. Appreciate what you have, be content. Yeah. How, how can you be, how can you appreciate, how can you be content? By not desiring or not material, I'm not, not being judged or driven by material. So. Not driven by material, but the mind will say, look, you know, yeah, I'm not driven, but you know, I could do with that. <laughs> I could do with going to Vancouver for a holiday. Not that I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm very happy, but I could do with that. <laughs> See what I mean, Ruby? Okay. And be content, selfless acts. Yeah, yes. selfless acts. So, this is a practical advice we're giving you, yeah? How to practice this. What happens, this is how mind works, yeah? If you look up to someone richer than you, what happens? If you look at someone richer than you, Dermesh? Make desires for prayer. Sorry? What was that? You're making desires for that. You want to be rich as well. You're you making that your high point. Okay. Yeah. So you, you're, you, that, that becomes your goal. When the goal, before, you know, I mean, like myself, I used to always wanted to be successful. Then I realized, you know, success is a mind frame. And that, now you put something else different as your goal, the less you take it. Whatever yeah. you put. Okay. Looking at people unfortunate, less fortunate, then it makes you think you've actually got a lot. Very good. Who's that? Sounds familiar. Oh, it's me, Prabha. You're right. <laughs> I'm back. Very good. Yes, absolutely right. If you look up to someone richer than you, what happens? You're miserable. You're dissatisfied with what you have. The minute you look down, someone less fortunate than you, what happens? You're happy and content with what you have. I'll give you an example. You have a three-bedroom house. You're driving down. You look at someone who has a mansion, five bedrooms, pool. You're unhappy. You think, I want a house like that. Why haven't I got one of those? You go back to your three-bedroom house, and you're not happy with what you have. You see a person with a one-bedroom flat. You become happy because you have three bedrooms. You have a house. You see a homeless and, person. And this um, this actually really works. Uh, when I've obviously had turmoil, um, when I lost my dad, and I thought, oh, you know, I used to think I'm the only one that hasn't got a dad, you know, feel sorry for herself. And then I had an auntie who also died and left three kids. But then I turned it around and said, well, 
Alisa had Malad for 18 years. They've only he's only two, and they lost uh, a mom. So it, it really does work, and uh, it's, it's so true that. So look down at people less for, un, less fortunate than you. You have a Toyota, you're happy until you see a person who has a, a Ferrari or Aston Martin. You say, I want one of those. And you're miserable with your Toyota. You see a person on a bicycle, you feel fortunate. At least I have a car. So learn to be content with what you have by looking down. Then you'll become more happier. Swamiji gives an example. And he comes up with his anecdotes and his life experiences. So you're saying he had dinner with this rich person, went to the person's mansion. This person had everything, business, servants, mansion, lovely wife, two, three kids. There's nothing more that he needed. You look up and you think, wow, this guy's made it. So he goes, we're sitting down for dinner and the servant is serving the food. Really professional, he's got the white clothes and everything and he's serving the food. And this um, person, this man who owns this house, he looks at the servant and he becomes agitated. It's getting annoyed with him, angry with him. Do it properly. Why are you doing it like that? And this servant is doing a perfect job. What's wrong, says Swamiji, to the host? So the man replies, look at him. Who does he think he is? You know why I was becoming annoyed? This servant had a full head of hair, really nice, wavy, well-styled. And the host was like me, no hair. Miserable. Every time he sees a servant, he's miserable. He'd give up millions to get hair like that. So you can have everything. We're always looking at things we don't have. I have seven with no hair. Huh? I have seven with no hair. So learn to look down, not up. I had no shoes and complained until I met a man with no feet. That's that's what life is. I had no shoes and complained until I met a man with no feet. At least you got feet. Any questions? So this is how you do, this is a practical way of looking at life. So that you're less unhappy. Nila, second paragraph. I'm sorry, Emma. Desire is the root of emotion. Desire arises out of ignorance of self. 
The self in you is perfect, whole, fulfilled. But your ignorance of self creates an imaginary void, imperfection, unfulfillment. You feel the void until you regain the knowledge of self. Consequently, your thoughts flow towards the world of objects and beings to fill this void. When your thoughts run after the objects indiscriminately, your senses lose their control. You become sensually indulgent. When they run sensual, when they run after beings, your mind develops emotional attachment. Sensual indulgence and emotional attachment constantly agitate your mind and render it unfit for higher contemplation and meditation. Hence, you must abandon your whole, your worldly desires before you can direct it to higher flights of meditation. Thank you. So our thoughts, desires to the world arise from the ignorance of the self. We don't know we're Puripurna, completely fulfilled. We don't understand that we're fulfilled. And because of that, our thoughts go to the world. And this is the cause of our mental agitations, our own ignorance. So we can only meditate if we are free of those agitations. Once we gain the knowledge of the self, we can control our worldly desires and direct our thoughts. The desires to merge with the self. Then we can reach the goal of union with the self, self-realization. This is our own ignorance, it's saying. See, the funny thing is, this knowledge, we just covered this verse, saying, look down, not up. So it's not only telling you, it's not only telling you how to reduce your desires, then what to do, but it's even telling you while you can't reduce your desires, at least be happy. This is how you need to be, this is how you need to function to be happy in the world. Okay, you're not ready for meditation, but at least be happy. Find some peace and happiness with whatever you have. It's telling you how to look at life. Forget about self-realization. At least follow that. Reduce your sorrow. Reduce your agitations. And what astounds me is that I was thinking about this. There's so much detail in these verses of how we should behave, how we should act. And it can only, it can only portray this knowledge if someone has been through it. Only if someone's experienced everything can they write it down and say, this is what happens to you if you do this. This is what happens if you've done that. Try this, try that. Which is, to me, like, it's just this words. It's someone's experience. And that's what makes this subject, this the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, so, so different from any other spiritual book. It's the collective experiences of self-realized souls who have lived this life like me and you and have reached that goal. And through experimentation, the first person who reached that goal, he wouldn't have had the Bhagavad Gita in front of him. 
This is like someone holding our little finger and helping us through life. Beta, this is what you need to do. You fall down, don't worry, pick yourself up. Here's a lollipop. This is what the Gita is doing, helping us. Isn't it? If you think about it, this is what it's doing. Every challenge we're going to face, he already knows. He'll say, this is what you're going to face. This is how you do it. How deal with it. So the knowledge is like miraculous. It's a miracle. And we're all gaining it. Some good karma you did in the past, you're getting it. Any questions? Every time I read, I get astounded. How does how does the Gita know, written thousands of years ago, what problems I will be having? What how to deal with those problems? That's why I say it's the manual to life. You want to live life to the fullest? Here's the manual. Lord Krishna himself is telling us. So think about it. So any general topic, anyone, um, we will start the next topic next week because this is the end of topic three. Any general topic? Yep, so. I wanted to ask, um, just, so the intellect guides the mind for meditation, yeah? The mind is full of thoughts, desires, likes, dislikes. Do you think that's where the practice of devotion comes in? Because if we are taking the step towards meditation as such, we've got to have faith in knowing that what we are doing will eventually take us higher than where we are now. Mm. That faith is a feeling. Is that a feeling of devotion to the higher so that therefore the mind is almost propelled from a worldly thought to a higher thought of devotion to that faith that you've got yeah i understand what you're asking okay so just now yeah i said this is how you reach the state of self-realization you know, reduce your desires uh, then you're ready to meditate and that transforms you into that fourth state yeah that's an intellectual concept it's an intellectual concept correct this is what you need to do yeah 
Now, to, in order to do that, the mind has to surrender to the intellect. And I said, I can't believe the words of the Gita. I can't believe what Lord Krishna has written in these books. Manual of Life, it tells us how to feel less pain, less sorrow, more happiness. Yeah. And these words propel us beyond this world to the next stage. Now I'm appealing to the mind. And I'm sure some of you felt some emotion within to think, wow, this is amazing. And I'm studying this, I'm learning this, I'm so fortunate. That's appealing to the mind, the emotions. First time, it's Krishna, Lord Krishna is um, um, sending the intellectual message to the intellect. The intellect must set the goal, the mind must surrender and follow. Now we're saying, look what Lord Krishna has written. You know, you, so the mind has to feel what the intellect is thinking. I have a statue of Lord Krishna. I do Devo every day. It's devotion. Krishna, you're so great. You stand for so much. I'm even exposed to your knowledge. And to that, I bow down to you. That's devotion. That the Lord won't misguide me. I have full faith in the words that the Lord is prescribing to me in the Bhagavad Gita. So I surrender to that. So that's the mind feeling. So you have to have that. Otherwise, it becomes dry. The mind will pull you this way, the intellect's pulling you this way, and neither of them will uh, take you anywhere. So these are the Lord's words, and then you have to believe and follow that. And for that, you need devotion. I surrender to you, Lord. Guide me. I don't know what I'm doing. I have everything, but I'm still unhappy. the best husband, best children, best job. I can't ask for anything more. Why am I still unhappy? I now surrender to you. That's devotion. Good question. So faith comes from the intellect or the mind? Then? Faith is a belief that this will take me to my goal. And that faith is Something that happens gradually. As you believe more and more in the words of the Lord, you gain faith. You can't have faith straight away. You have to surrender and then hope that this will guide me. Any other clarifications? So these words should elevate you on a Sunday morning to a high. And it's downhill after this. <laughs> okay, any other quick topics you want to discuss? Clarifications?
um, just let the class know that we are looking and getting that live class sorted within hopefully the next couple of weeks. Yeah. It's going to be a chilly morning, so I hope you guys make it, yeah? <laughs> I don't want to be the only one there in my dotty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So have a lovely day.